Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Matt Donovan about his poem, Guy with a Gun, which appears in issue 24 of The Common. Matt Donovan is the author of three collections of poetry and a book of lyric essays. His latest collection, The Dug Up Gun Museum, came out last year from BOA Editions. He is the recipient of a Whiting Award, a Rome Prize in Literature, a Creative Capital Grant, and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Literature. He serves as director of the Boutel Day Poetry Center at Smith College. Matt Donovan, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Would you set the scene for our conversation, just describe where you're living and calling from right now? I live in South Amherst, so um, happily is a really gorgeous day. I'm here in my office looking out the window at our peach trees that are not going to bear any fruit this year because of an early frost, um, and they need to be, uh, my kid needs to do some weed whacking around them, so that's, <laughs> uh, that's the scene in my backyard right now. That sounds idyllic. Um, I would love to start off with a reading. Would you read your prose poem, Guy with a Gun, for us? I'd be happy to. Thanks. Guy with a Gun. There's the phrase once again. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun. This time pasted on a Subaru's fender. Its rote answer tagging along in a faded Wild West font. Today, though idling in traffic, instead of knee-jerk counter-arguments and a few remembered memes, I'm thinking of a guy I met in Newtown, Connecticut, who had a son in the first grade at Sandy Hook Elementary School when the shooting took place. His kid is alive, that should be said from the outset, but since the guy was teaching science at the middle school across town when the frantic texts and rumors and lockdown began, For a few hours, he wasn't sure if his son had been shot. His son is alive because the shooter chose to step into a different classroom. But at first, no one knew what had happened, including the guy's wife, as she drove to the school to build gingerbread houses and saw an empty car blocking the road. By then, she could smell gunpowder searing the air. By then there were sirens in the distance, and soon a police officer held the gathered parents back as a group of children came running, one of whom was covered in blood, and said as she reached for her mom there in the crowd, I'm all right, but the other kids are dead. All of which is one reason why, when the emails and online postings began claiming that there had never been a shooting, that all of these parents were lying, that the grief of Sandy Hook was being performed. The guy's wealth wife felt compelled to respond, to say what happened had happened. I was there, she wrote back, I was there. But the voices continued, a chorus that wouldn't stop calling the guy's wife liar, conspirator, no matter what facts she gave. When the threats began, I'm bad for people's health, someone wrote on Instagram. Wait until I find your children. The guy and his wife went to to the police and told them there was nothing they could do. Passwords were changed. Users were blocked. The taunts continued. 
after she wrote, this stalking needs to stop. Someone responded by posting a picture of their son accompanied by the words, this is stalking, bitch, which is when the guy renewed his permit to carry a gun and began slipping his 45 into its holster whenever he left the house. Perhaps you think you know where this is going. Perhaps this seems as predictable as any sloganeering phrase. Except this story refuses to be reduced to a single phrase. The guy kept his gun close, not knowing what else to do. Whenever he felt its heft running errands, driving his car, maybe it seemed as if order could be restored. Or maybe the gun made him feel as if he could stop the worst thing from becoming still worse. One morning, the guy drove to the middle school where he'd been teaching for years and running late for a meeting, stepped into the building with the gun holstered under his coat. Maybe he just wasn't thinking. Maybe it was carelessness, arrogance, indifference to the rules. The guy knows that the word mistake doesn't cut it, Closer would be some word that doesn't exist for a fuck-up spilling out of desperation, or perhaps a desire to shield while also circumventing grief and trying to find some kind of foothold in the wake of 20 children being shot in his hometown. But the guy isn't concerned. The guy isn't interested in the words we might choose. Instead, he's thinking about the choices he should have made rather than strolling to the photocopier to prepare for class and watching the machine's light flare a few times across his hands as he pressed down on a book spine before he was approached by the principal and asked to lift up his jacket. He knew then he'd be leaving in handcuffs. He didn't yet know that he'd lose his teaching license or that the prosecutor's first offer would be a year in prison with a four-year suspended sentence that without written permission he could never again pick up his son after school or attend school events or vote at a public school, that any future employer would see his mugshot online, that some of his friends in town would never speak to him again, and one day he'd find himself standing in a shaded corner of his yard, unemployed, listening to afternoon traffic push past, telling his story to some guy who for whatever it's worth, didn't know what words to say. Thank you for reading that. Um, I usually ask podcast guests to explain what their piece is about, but I think your, yours is pretty clear. But I'm really curious what inspired you to start work on this poem and how, how that first draft came together. Yeah, so um, I, this is a little bit of a long story, but um, when I, I started, I mean, like so many of us, I just was filled with so much um, grief at our ongoing violence, um, gun violence in America, and also just rage at our um, at the impasse and our seeming inability to get anything passed. So I, I decided any new legislation. Um, I decided I wanted to try and understand the problem more, that there were things about guns that I recognized that I didn't know. And I just, I wanted to go out and talk to people, put boots on the ground and actually have conversations with gun owners and um, and try and get a better better handle on um, why we guns are not um, 
have really just seized our imagination um, as Americans. Um, and uh, I just, I wanted to sort of break out of the bubble that I felt like I was living in. So this goes back um, about seven years ago when I first started thinking about it. And then um, gradually my travel um, and research just picked up um, more speed and momentum. And there was a period of time there where, you know, I was traveling around, I was talking to people and I was going to communities. Um, I grew up in Northeast Ohio. I wanted to um, go to Cleveland. I wanted to go to Chicago. I was in Cody, Wyoming. Um, But all along out there, I knew at some point I would have to um, somehow address Sandy Hook um, and the shooting that took place there. Um, And I had complicated feelings about it. Um, I didn't I definitely didn't want to intrude on anyone's grief, um, but it also, it felt uh, pointed and a terrible mistake to not address it in any way. Um, And so eventually I decided that um, I would need to go there. And I set up a number of interviews, um, including um, with um, the person who had been the mayor at the time of the shooting with um, his name is, uh, he goes by Father Bob, um, the priest that presided over a a number of the funerals. Um, I did not want to try to talk to any um, parents who had lost children in that tragedy, um, because that did feel intrusive, but I wanted to talk to people that, um, had been, had been a part of it in some way. And as I was doing the research, I stumbled upon this story of this middle school teacher, um, which I think, as you said, hopefully the, the narrative there is, is pretty clear what had happened to him. Um, and I, it immediately gripped me. It was a story I hadn't heard um, that I, I don't think got a lot of national press when it happened. Um, but uh, just the complications of the story really struck me. Um, you know, just, you know, here was someone who um, had very nearly could have easily lost a child in that event um, and then had been, you know, plagued by this harassment by um, Sandy Hoax, uh, Sandy, um, um, the, the deniers uh, of the event, um, and um, and wasn't able to move on with his life in any way. And he had made a terrible mistake, but but you know, um, I understood why he felt the need to protect his family. I understood why he made some of the choices he did, if not all of them. And I understood that it, it just was a much more fraught and complicated and messier situation than um, I think uh, that is maybe a little different than how many of us find ourselves thinking about guns. I think, you know, it can be treated in a way that is um, a, a, a just, you know, sort of, a, a red and blue divide, you know, that there's the the gun owners and then those that um, that don't have guns, and you know, it's divided along political lines, and um, and it it just spoke to the the infinite complications of this, and also um, the way in which uh, tragedy begets tragedy, and how Sandy Hook has not, has not recovered um, from that shooting at this point. You know, that was 10 years ago, uh, 10 and a half years ago now. Um, so he was someone who I I thought I, I want to understand more of what happened. And when I when I spent um, my time there in Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut, um, I'm not trained as a journalist. Um, I wanted to be so respectful of his privacy. I didn't. The last thing I wanted to do was somehow make it worse. 
for anyone. Um, and so I had set up these other interviews. I hadn't yet finalized anything um, with with this person the poem is about. Um, but I had reached out to him. I'd written him a letter and I hadn't heard back. And so when I got to town, I actually found his number online and I reached out. Um, and it it was a sheer force of will that I, I reached out to him. But I thought, I, I don't, it seems like an important story to tell. And I didn't want to squander the opportunity. Um, so I called him up and he said, why don't you come out right now? And so I drove out to his house and then this was incredibly instructive. One of the things that became immediately clear was nobody had ever asked him his side of the story. No one had ever spoken to him. So whereas I was deeply concerned about intruding upon um, his the complicated situation for his family, he was relieved to have a chance to tell his side of it, which had never been asked. Um, and so that was that was an incredibly powerful thing to understand in that moment. Um, I will say that um, the book that I had been planning for quite some time um, had started out as a nonfiction book. I had wanted to write this as a, a chapter in a nonfiction book. And that book, uh, I had an agent for it. I um, had a lot of uh, chapters and plans for that book. We could not sell it. Um, so one of the things we learned, um, in the course of going through that is that gun books do not sell. Um, and I think this maybe speaks to the problem too, that, um, either, you know, a lot about guns and so you're not, um, interested in some gun noob talking to you about guns and gun violence in America, or you're someone who really hate, hates guns. And so doesn't want to read a 400 page nonfiction book about guns. Um, or at least that's how the, the publishing world sees it. Um, and I, I think, um, what do I want to say about this? I, I think that, um, when I, when I spoke to his name is Jason, his first name is Jason. When I spoke to Jason there, I think, um, he likely might've preferred that it be, um, a chapter in a nonfiction book that that might've, you know, been a more direct way to get his story out there. And it certainly would have been a, a longer meditation on the nuances of what led up to this. Um, and in the end, um, the book, uh, when it was shelved as a nonfiction project um, for many, many years, uh, no, it was probably about a two-year process or about, uh, actually, there's a year limbo, come to think of it, now that I'm clarifying the timeline in my head, um, where I thought this none of this content would ever see the light of day. And there were many interviews that I had, including this one um, with Jason from Sandy Hook, where I just couldn't relinquish the content. I couldn't um, I couldn't stop thinking about this story and I wanted to get it out there in some form. And that is when it became, uh, that it took on this form, which is somewhere between, I would say a prose poem and maybe, you know, some sort of act of flash nonfiction. So that's a very long answer to your question, but it is, I think a really complicated and nuanced situation. Yeah, it's absolutely fine that it was a long answer because in the process, you answered like my next two or three questions. <laughs> so it's perfect. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about um, handling such a, a complex issue, you know, with so much gray area in a poem, because I think a lot of people might argue that poems are too short to encompass this complicated situation or or too limited to, to really go deep on a subject like this with so much nuance. But I actually think it it works so well because we really can't answer all of these questions 
you yeah. know, that, that raise here. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think, I mean, part of my impulse here was certainly just to, to tell the story. I think this is one of the pieces in the book where, um, as a narrator or someone who's writing this, um, I, I wanted to get out of the way to some extent, you know, um, and I think tell the story, that's part of it. But I also hope in the way that I set it up um, with that idea of, you know, the, the, you know, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun is the obviously the, the bumper sticker there that is being referred to. And um, what I wanted to do was somehow present it in the context of um, a more, a much more complicated situation that couldn't fit into any kind of sloganeering, you know, um, where it was, um, it was not something that could be, um, you know, easily distilled on, on one side or the other of the issue. Yeah, at absolutely. Least that's the way I saw it. Yeah. And it's, it's nice because it's sort of the, the, the piece is certainly his story, but sort of framed with you at the beginning. And then at the end, we were reminded that you're, you're sort of hearing this story from him in the, the yard. Yeah. And for, for better, for worse, I, the speaker, you know, isn't sure, you know, what to say, um, in terms of, um, the, the narrative that he's heard, um, that there's, there is no easy solace or, or answer to give. And I, I, I think in a lot of the poems in the collection, I wanted to put in my own, um, fallibility, um, and, um, and, and have that be a part of it, that it, that it's not trying to, I mean, because there is no easy answer to these issues, I think, around guns. Um, you know, I think one of the things I learned in a lot of my um, travels and speaking to people is, I mean, first of all, there are plenty of people on, the, on a wide political spectrum who are gun owners. You know, when I talked to when I spoke to people in Cody, Wyoming, um, I met incredibly liberal people who were activists who also just had guns as part of their world um, because of, of where they lived. Um, but they were, you know, they would be seen as as, um, quite liberal on on every political issue, but they just happen to be gun owners. So um, you know, I wanted to put my um, my own sort of um, gradual uh, understanding of the issue to th- that for that to be a, a part of it, and and not be presenting it as someone who um, had answers, but just as someone who had gone out and had their own understanding of the issue expanded, um, and had heard a lot of. Um, tragic and complicated stories that um, couldn't be um, distilled in, in any tidy way. Mm. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit more about the collection that this poem is part of. Um, it's called the Dug Up Gun Museum. And I was wondering if you could tell us where the title comes from. Yeah, well, the title that uh, that comes straight out of a real life place in Cody, Wyoming. Um, so and this actually speaks to the whole issue around um, the, the prose uh, and poetry issue as well. Um, I had traveled to Cody, Wyoming to speak to people about what was then um, a kind of a novel idea of arming um, public school teachers and staff members as a deterrent for mass shootings. And so, you know, for um, a visit like that, I had one sort of primary question or one issue that I was um, driving at, I spoke to a lot of people. I spoke to the sheriff and the superintendent and a variety of teachers and principals. Um, and I was talking to them focused on, on that particular topic. But um, as happens so often with my travels where I would, I would arrive somewhere with a, a particular question 
um, to ask or to address. And there'd be so much that was going on outside of that, that I wish I had had time or, um, you know, the, the, the bandwidth to say more about. And as I was um, sort of delineating the chapters of this proposed book, um, I, I could just see the ways in which other things that might have um, interested me weren't going to be able to fit into that particular channel. Um, and uh, the Dug Up Gun Museum is a perfect example of that, where there's a real life place um, called the Dug Up Gun Museum, as I already said. Um, and I just sort of walked in off the street and started exploring this place. And um, the owner is someone who has been collecting guns. I mean, it's self-explanatory maybe from the name of it, but had been um, collecting guns that had been unearthed at, at a variety of locations all across America. So it could be a civil war battlefield where weapons were found, or it could be all the way back to revolutionary times or Western expansion and homesteaders. And so um, he had these glass vitrines that filled the museum that um, were also filled with dirt and then decayed guns. Um, and sort of like little bits of rocks and little plants um, to sort of be mimetic of the landscape in which they would have been found. Um, and it it really seized my imagination. And it really, to my mind, seemed to speak to this issue of, um, again, the ways in which guns in America have not only, um, you know, are occupying our imagination, but have just saturated the landscape. Um, and so it's as if, you know, the earth is, is, um, growing these things or, you know, is, or our history is so broad, um, with firearms in America that there, there's nowhere where you do not find them, um, that the, the guns are, are just everywhere. Um, and we're, they're literally on the soil that we walk across every day, which um, it just seemed like a quite a, a metaphor for our country in this day and age. So that's that's the origins of the poem itself. And um, in the end, it was really interesting with the prose book where, A, I don't think that was a nonfiction book that I was in the end equipped to write. Um, I, I had the best intentions, I think, and I, I, had, I was really driving after... Um, the topics during all of my travels. But in the end, um, you know, m- my work is in poetry. And I think there were, um, there were images and smaller anecdotes and um, moments that I wanted to interrogate through the tools of poetry, um, such as metaphor or form. Um, and that was, that was more of what I was um, e- equipped to do. And I think, I hope it's a more resonant collection because of its form as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that absolutely makes sense. The, uh, just the the impossibility of really covering all that material and, and giving it all the attention it needs. Whereas with a poem, you can really focus on the aspects of it that are most powerful or most you know visual or powerful. Yeah, just it totally makes sense to me. Well, I agree, and I think you know going back to even how I was describing the the individual chapters of the book proposal, which you know had come to about a hundred pages when I sent it in to the publishers, but um, that it was in retrospect too tidy, you know, that um, it was it was um, too much uh, fueled by um, my own um, assumptions and limited knowledge from the outset. And everything had to fit into these little slots to make it um, seem as if it, it was, um, you know, expansively addressing the issue. Whereas I feel like poetry in its associative lyric movements is 
perhaps better equipped to address this issue, which is infinitely varied and incredibly um, complex. And at times, you know, I mean, the tonal range too, you know, I mean, just, you know, that we're a country that has places um, like, uh, you know, I, I visit a place like, uh, you know, Machine Gun Vegas, right? Where, um, where you just, you know, to go into the gift shop of a place like Machine Gun Vegas, you're seeing um, the, the kitsch and, you know, just, um, you know, the, the absurd nature of the ways in which um, guns have seized our imagination. Um, and then that, you know, somehow has to be addressed and interrogated side by sides at times with um, our ongoing tragedies and our, our, our gun violence that is so prevalent. And so hopefully poetry at times is, is, a right, is the right tool to at least, if it doesn't have all the answers, at least I, what I hope to do with this book is um, present a portrait of America. I, I really, there are times where I really saw it as I hoped an act of a kind of portraiture of who we are. Uh, that's a perfect segue to my next point, which was that I was going to ask you to read um, another poem that we've we've published in the common from this collection. It was in our April 2022 poetry feature. Um, the title's a mouthful. I'm going to let you do it, but um, would you mind reading that poem for us? I'd be happy to. Thanks. Portrait of America as a Philadelphia Derringer, Abraham Lincoln assassination box set replica. Because there's a likeness in the gilded trigger that flourish of vine trumpet engraved across metal, the way a hinged box becomes a reliquary for the fetishized weapon, and how its replica design helps history tumble toward an eBay listing that includes a dozen shots of the gun rotated just a bit each time, as if ticking along the face of a clock, each hour a new chance to make you pause and press bid. Do you see the resemblance? Of course, it's there too in each related sponsored item. A Civil War chess set where tiny Confederate flags unfurl from the gray sides rooks. Or in the ashtray, rimmed with 22 karat gold that uses a dying man as backdrop to the main event of Booth caught midair, forever falling toward the stage while clutching his gun that lets loose a scribble of smoke upon which we can drop our ashes. Or there's the birth of a nation poster advertising how, for three minutes within its vision of America restored by the Klan, it reenacts the assassination for our pleasure using a series of cuts between Lillian Gish and the audience as a stand-in for us all. Lincoln miming a prescient chill and Booth skulking near the theater box before lunging in and doing what we've waited to see. Is this footage real? Or are those actors, Lightning Bolt asks. For Reels replies, that gish was a looker. Portrait of America as YouTube comments scrolled through a night without end. Portrait of America as a portrait of Gish, held by her future clansman Beau, a little earlier in the same movie, when there was no chance of war brewing in the distance, when everything glowed with possibility if you were the well-meaning white hero in a racist film. 
If against a backdrop of slaves working the fields, both your swooning pantomime and the orchestra's dragged out lay motif broadcast how much, even at first glance, you adored this woman you'd never met, who would blame you, given how her eyes lift towards something beyond the frame, and the way a veil plumes her face like smoke, inflaming you, inspiring you to steal the keepsake photo from your friend in a joke that's not a joke, allowing the seeds of your obsession to flourish. Maybe with enough rain and sun, those seeds will grow into more cotton someone will need to pick. Or perhaps they'll take root in the fields, not in the fields, but along a coast that can't be far from the place Lincoln dreamed and wrote about hours before he died. An indescribable vessel that was moving with great rapidity toward a dark and indefinite shore. Portrait of America as exactly that. Portrait of America as you name it, ticking forward, rehashed, brought back once more like Lillian Gish returned to Ford's theater decades later, cast now as the aggrieved widow-to-be in the mediocre made-for-TV movie The Day Lincoln Died, where the same trigger squeeze makes her become a punchline we've already heard. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? Portrait of America as a joke about dying that will never die, as yet another aftermaths other than that, other than that refrain. Thank you for reading that. Um, This piece travels quite a distance. You know, it starts with eBay, um, goes through a lot of history through sort of these movie moments, these pop culture moments. Um, I'm sort of curious, are, are there parts of this poem that surprised you while you were writing it? Like, did it go where you thought it would? No, that's a great question. <laughs> um, yeah, I know I was, um, and I think what, when writing a poem in general, um, I'm on, I'm definitely on the lookout and hoping that I will be surprised by things. If I know where things are going from the outset, um, that typically turns into a very failed poem for me. So my process is incredibly messy. Um, so it's a lot of notes, um, and no sense really of where I might be led. Um, and for this particular piece, um, I just, I was, there are a lot of, um, there, I think one of the um, recurrent motifs in the collection, or one of them, is um, ways in which we might fetishize these weapons um, that I'm talking about. So whether, whereas there's um, actual guns and actual um, tragedies um, caused by firearms, there's also the ways in which we're perceiving them, I think, is something I'm really interested in. And I just was, when I came across this eBay posting, which is verbatim from what I saw, just was really struck by the ways in which... Uh, again, the weapon is fetishized and just removed from any sense of it um, as a device, uh, a tool that has been um, designed specifically to kill people and the ways in which the human um, cost of uh, the guns is is just very much removed from this thing. Um, so then, you know, I started I started to look into um, that idea of of Lincoln's assassination, which led to birth of a nation. And then um, that's where I came across uh, again. A lot of this is just research itself pulling me forward. But the the fact that Lillian Gish um, was in the the same scene, but for different movies and in different roles. So that seemed to speak to, I was interested in the ways in which that spoke to recurrent history and these cycles of violence that we have 
Um, and and then I what I did I spent some unfortunate time um, watching rewatching scenes from Birth of a Nation um, and in that scene where um, the the boyfriend is is sort of courting her there was that the gesture where he's he, he is hiding the portrait as a joke and then it's very clear that he's not joking and at some point that. Um, triggered for me, or at least I, I saw this association with, um, you know, the, that what is probably a very familiar joke, um, that idea, it's almost a cliche. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? Which is a way of, you know, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, a joke that references this historical moment, but it's also a joke that seems indicative of our country's ability to move on and the ways in which gun violence is normalized and the ways in which we seem to be striving to look past it. Um, and so that's where the, the joke, back to your question, I was surprised that the idea of the joke came forward to such an extent and certainly that that's where the poem ended. Um, and then I was also surprised as I structured this collection that I ended up ending ending the whole book with this poem, um, which is it's not a, there's no resolution here at all, right? I actually, I find the idea of this ending the book kind of a, a horrific idea <laughs> um, that, you know, that it's that it's moving already, trying to look past a moment of aftermath and saying, no, other than that, you know, what else can we talk about? Um, and that that is already locked in as a tragic refrain for our country. Um, but once I, I did come up with that idea, it was hard to... Um, find anything else that, to my mind at least, um, for the other poems that that spoke to our moment. You know, I think I think the normalization of violence is something that is um, one of our country's great tragedies and something to, to which I, I don't see a resolution to. So it, in the end, it unfortunately seemed really fitting as a as a place of closure. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately. <laughs> Um, so you've been running the Poetry Center at Smith College for, for a few years now, um, and I, I was a Smithy, and I took a great poetry class there before I graduated, which was in 2009. Oh, were you a Smithy? I didn't know yep. that. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, I've, you know, I love the Poetry Center, um, but yeah, it's been a long time since I was there. <laughs> um, would you just talk a little bit about what it's been like running the center? Um, you know, it's, it's been around such a long time, but uh, you know, I know you've been there a couple of years. Yeah, it'll be uh, five years uh, this August that we moved to this area. Um, we have been living out in New Mexico. Um, oh, I love it so much. It is, it, this is by far the best job I've ever had. Um, it is, I mean, as you must know, I mean, it's just such an incredible community of um, students and faculty, and I, I love all my colleagues. And then I, I am, um, I feel so beyond belief lucky that, that this is my job um, to think about um, bringing in poets who um, will somehow speak to the community um, of students there. And I feel like, you know, my job is not to sort of, um, you know, trundle together, you know, these are my favorite poets, um, but it's, you know, to really give some careful thought to um, who can offer us something in this moment um, that might change our idea about poetry, that might um, enlarge our sense of what contemporary poetry might be. Um, and that for me has been one of the 
the greatest pleasures of being at Smith is um, I teach a class that is tied into um, the poetry programming. Um, and so the basic structure of the class is we'll talk about a poet's work. And then the next week in lieu of a class discussion, we'll have that poet, we'll go to that poet's reading um, and have a chance to hear the poet in conversation with someone in addition to the hear the work. Um, and um, I it's it's become a very large class. I have over 100 students pretty consistently who are taking that course. And so first of all, I mean, I think that speaks to um, the incredible nature of Smithies, where it's um, it's not just the poetry nerds who are coming out to this um, to this class. It's you know students from I think almost literally every discipline across campus um, who are who have um, an authentic interest and curiosity about poetry, but it's also people who I think know that poetry might be more than what they might have experienced in high school, which unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to happen in terms of both curriculum and pedagogy with poetry. And so, you know, for a lot of these folks, um, you know, the the readings they, they would be coming to at Smith might be the very first poetry reading they'd ever experienced um and you know there um we've had so many even poets come to campus who um will you know come and talk to our students and say you know when i was in high school i didn't know that poetry was something that was done by living breathing people and i thought it was something that dead white dudes did a long time ago um and you know that 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 Contemporary poetry can be something that speaks very specifically, you know, to this moment, um, to their lives, to their identities, um, and might complicate and enlarge their sense of the world and themselves is something that is um, absolutely just, you know, such an ongoing pleasure at Smith Mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, that does sound like a good job. <laughs> it is the best. <laughs> um, well, always our last question for podcast guests. Um, what are you working on now? What's what's next from you? Oh, gosh. Well, um, yeah, thanks for this question, too. Um, <laughs> I'm working on just small poems that never mention guns and in which nobody gets shot. Um, yeah, I spent many years um, working on this project, um, trying to you know think about about guns in our country. And I'm just, I'm trying to write um, just different kinds of poems, just different topics. And um, it's been really refreshing and cathartic for me to just find um, new ways um, into a different kind of content. Yeah, that sounds um, absolutely necessary and deserved. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Matt Donovan, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you. Oh, thanks so much. It was such a pleasure being here. I really appreciate all your great questions. Listeners, you can read Matt's poems and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.